and welcome back to the Mason Jar Podcast. I'm Karen Kern, the host of this eight-episode series called Education is a Life, Creating Purposeful Culture in Our Homes. This eighth episode is about how literature, poetry, and drama can contribute to the formation of the soul of the child and the culture in our families. And today I'm joined by my friends out in Colorado, Heidi White and Emily Hill. Hi, ladies. Hi, Karen. It's good and to be here. here. And I'm actually looking at them every time <laughs> we've done this. It's just audio, but today we have a video on my computer. So I get to look at them while we record this. And that's fun mm. for me because they're so pretty. You, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> so what's life? What are you doing out there in Colorado besides sitting in lovely home, sipping on something? Yes, I that, Heidi. Some iced coffee. So, <laughs> iced coffee. yes, perfect. Um, well, I was just at the pool. I just took my daughter to the pool uh, because it is high summer still. Uh, so, that's you're really living the life out here. High summer. Yeah, it's been high summer here, but the other day we had a bad storm and then it went down into the 60s. And then Larissa wow. and I were going out. We both put on our jeans and we hey, put on like your parkas we can, we can out there in North Carolina. You're like today. 64 degrees. It's like the tundra. Yeah. Where's yeah. my down jacket? Was laughing. <laughs> and then we had a little bit of a couple of puddles. So Serafina had to put on her boots, as she calls them, to wear my rain boots. <laughs> so it was really nice to have that change in the weather. Oh. And what are you guys getting ready to do? I know you're both getting ready to take a trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you know what, Karen, last time we, um, I was on the podcast, we were getting ready for that camping trip, which yeah, that, that's a story in and of itself. Um, mm-hmm. but we are actually leaving today as well for another trip. We're headed to the East coast, um, for a couple of weeks and yeah. speaking of hot weather, we're going to chase it down that way. Yeah, you sure are. Yeah. And Heidi, what are you up to? Oh, well, recording podcasts and then I heading know. out to North Carolina for the apprenticeship. And you'll both be there. With Emily, yeah. So I know. We'll get to lay eyes on you, Karen yeah, Kern. I hope so. I know that you'll be busy with all the people and all the things. We are never too busy. But to come I see us. hope to get over there and visit you at that nice hotel. Say hello, have lunch, have coffee, have dinner. <laughs> Whatever all of those. Have all those things. <laughs> So anyways, um, back to our topic today, which is how literature and poetry and drama and, and all of those good things um, support and nurture the culture of our homes through, I think, the, the growing and the forming of our children. Um, and we talked, about all, we talked about some of that the very first episode you ladies were on with me. And we talked about what it means to have a culture in a home and how it's purposeful, how it's also just under the surface of our, of our purpose sometimes and just shows itself um, in the things that we love. And right. so I want to jump in with that here. Um, how, well, let's talk about how um, literature, the power of literature, I guess. When I, I found this quote um, in... Uh, a philosophy of education by Charlotte Mason, where she says, literature has become a living power in the minds. Hmm. So who wants to jump in and address the idea of living power in the minds and that's its power. Right. One of the great powers, transformative and I think redemptive power of stories is the ability of a story to get behind uh, kind of the, 
the propositional way that most of us think about truth and goodness and beauty uh, in terms of let's define it. Uh, and stories kind of get behind that to the emotive power of those things, connect our emotional responses to whatever's happening in the story to the characters, uh, whether it's sad or happy or someone's falling in love or whatever it is. Uh, and And we then become part of that story. And I think that's some of what she's getting at, Charlotte Mason, when she's talking about uh, the living power of stories, is that we then weave our own inner beings into what's going on within that story and become connected to it uh, and desire to imitate it or learn from it in some way. Well, and that idea of being a part of a story, I was kind of mulling over that this morning a little bit in that Every person's life is a story, right? We have a narrative. We all have our our own beginning, middle, end. We all have our who are the characters in the story? What is the setting? What is the what is the climax? That's that's actually true about our own life. Um, and I, when she uses that phrase, living that connection to our own life, I would say is the probably the most powerful part of literature. In that we don't. I don't even think we can. Can we read something and separate it entirely from ourselves? I don't think you can separate it from you. So there is something innate in the form of a story versus, you know, a lecture or some other, you know, form of uh, text that we can relate to and it becomes alive within us. And that's the power of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that uh, if we break down, the things that we teach our children into subjects for lack of a better word. Do you think that there's more power in the way we present literature to our children compared to say other subjects that are more fact-based? That's like, I think that's a really good question and a question that in some ways has to be carefully parsed. Yes, that's, that is true. Right. <laughs> uh, and that it isn't, I would I wouldn't say that it's more or most important but I would say it is absolutely necessary especially to a child who makes decisions in many ways through the imagination uh the the final formation of a child I guess this is true for all of us but specifically with children has not yet it's not been completed right so whatever they're taking in they're forming themselves to or being formed by. So a story with its unique capacity to engage the imagination and the emotion of a child uh, is so necessary for their little souls. For example, you know, you say to a child, good is good and bad is bad. We should teach them that as a proposition, right? That's propositional truth. And we sh- and good is stronger than evil and good defeats evil, right? That's just true, whether they hear that in the form of a story or not. But when they read something like the Chronicles of Narnia, put themselves behind the eyes of Lucy or Edmund or Hiking Peter uh, or even the the white witch, right? Then they have a choice whether or not they're going to imitate good. Uh, 
and unite themselves with it through that imaginative capacity. And that's what stories do because at that point, they want to be like Lucy and they don't want to be like the White Witch, right? That's a lot different from just saying to a child, you should love good and hate evil. But to give them the capacity to tie their emotions to it through a story and to imitate that in their imaginative play and in the way they talk to each other, what you talk about over the dinner table, uh, that is unique to childhood. And those are the years I think they need to be formed by those things. And the power of literature is how it affects their, the way they view the world as far as um, morality, ethics, so that that whole idea of right and wrong. Now, whether or not that's more important or more powerful than another, you know, they subject, um, is it more important to have a strong moral base than to understand Latin? <laughs> As Heidi said, I'm not sure you can have a, a proposition that is, is it either or, or is it both? And both are very formational. Um, I mean, I guess, the idea is, I guess you think of it as the human body. So we see that we're made up of our, you know, heart, soul, mind, and strength is our, is our strength less important than our mind and our soul. We would say it holistically, it is the entire makeup. And yet the power of literature, um, poetry plays all of those it has the ability to directly affect those other subjects. And that's why I see if, if you offer that to your children in a holistic way to say they're intertwined. I cannot separate, I cannot separate what I learned from Edmund and Lucy from math or science. Um, there's actually an intertwining of those subjects um, and, and I would say it's actually part of our work as homeschool moms to open our kids' eyes to that, to have that conversation with them. Um, so as they're learning to make those right and wrong decisions, that actually affects how they see those other quote-unquote subjects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Well, and even in, you know, we're also very careful to say it's not more important or whatever, but I'll say that... I'll take a stand on this, that if I have a limited amount of time, let's say the kids have a dentist appointment in the afternoon or you know, we're going to someone's house for dinner, we've got mm-hmm. errands to run or whatever. And so we have, say, a shortened school day in which we have to carefully select for you know, on this day, we're not going to be mm-hmm. able to get to everything. I'm making sure we're getting to the read-alouds. Yes. Yeah. I'm making sure that the day is formed by stories, even if that means there are some subjects that might be put off for another day, because I think this is essential. Uh, Because again, we're not just raising kids for the school year. We're raising kids for life. They're going to grow up and have the opportunity to learn many things on their own that they love. And one of the things I want them to love is literature, poetry, stories. This, I want to be formational to them throughout their entire lives. Uh, And this is, I think, how Jesus taught as well through stories. And this is the form of the word of God that we have is a significant amount of it is narrative. I want that to be primary in our homeschooling. Um, that, that reminds me of the, the phrase that uh, vegan writes so much about, you know, the moral imagination. Yes. And I don't, I don't know that Charlotte Mason ever uses that phrase because I don't think it was really 
it really became a popular phrase until um, T.S. Eliot and um, uh, name escapes me anyways, um, wrote about it. And then vegan Croyan, mm-hmm. you know, in his book on fairy tales really develops that, that whole idea of the moral imagination, which, which is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, to that, I want to just read this a few lines from Charlotte Mason, where she says on page 184 in this philosophy of education, the object of children's literary studies is not to give them precise information as to who wrote what in the reign of whom, but to give them a sense of the spaciousness of the days, not only of great Elizabeth, but of all the times in which poets, historians, and the makers of tales have left us living pictures. In such such ways, the children secure not the sort of information which is of little cultural value, but wide spaces wherein imagination may take those holiday excursions deprived of which life is dreary. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could, you could say, and in fact, I was reading something recently, I don't remember yesterday or today about um, somebody talking about the dreariness of the Latin declensions and, (laughs) you know, and um, it's true. They can be dreary. True. And so without the stories and without, you know, the, those excursions into the imagination, you know, life, life is dreary without those living pictures. And I love, I just love how she, she expresses those, those thoughts. Right. And the spaciousness of the days. What do you think she means by that? That reminds me of the, it's a, it's a really well-known quote, but I'll read it by Lewis. Um, I mean, essentially he's saying the same thing says, those of us who have been true readers all our life seldom fully realize the enormous extension of our being, which we owe to authors. We realize it best when we talk with an unliterary friend. He may Mm -hmm. be full of goodness and good sense, but he inhabits a tiny world. In it, we should be suffocated. The man who is Mm -hmm. contented to be only himself and therefore less a self is in prison. My own eyes are not enough for me. I will see through those of others. Reality, even seen through the eyes of many, is not enough. I will see what others have invented. And it reminded me of that, just the, mm-hmm. the spaciousness that is out there, even beyond, beyond reality, beyond the, you know, the, the realness of history or whatever texts are in that. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the value of literature is... I will see what others have invented. And through that, I become more myself, more who I was made to be. And that's actually what's been so influential in our own home. And we, I mean, we are so limited. We just, you know, live in suburbia. Hmm. Um, and I would, I love that when he says, my own eyes are not enough for me. I would see through the eyes of others. I think that's what Charlotte Mason is hitting on of why, why would we limit ourselves to the four walls of our house or even our own time and place mm-hmm. when not only other people's lives, but other people's imaginations, um, like don't limit yourself to your own imagination and your own time and place. See through the eyes of others. So, yeah. so you alluded to your own home. so. I would love to hear from both of you how 
literature and drama and poetry and all all these wonderful things we've talked about here, um, how they contribute to the life of your own home or the formation of your children. You know, how have you and those are the same things, but those are different things. Right. Um, they are. And one feeds the other back and forth. Your child, you know, what's going on in your child's soul feeds your home and what's going on in your home feeds your child's soul. Mm-hmm. So how, yeah. what have your experiences been? Right. Books and characters and. Well, like anything, reading books is work. You know, it's, it takes any child if given a, box of lucky charms and a meal of you know freshly cooked farm fresh eggs they're going to they're going to pick the lucky charms right so this is a habit of nourishment for the soul that has to be trained into the life of a child and that can be done i believe at any any stage mm-hmm. but it does take more work the older they get if they're not used to it um so in our home reading has been I mean, it's almost even, I don't know if Emily feels the same way or even you, Karen, looking back on your home, it's hard to even imagine a home without, without reading, right? Like you just, I just read to my kids like all the time from the time they were babies, Mm -hmm. we just read to them and uh, we read out loud. As soon as they can read on their own, we had little requirements for them to read on their own because these are the years that they're forming habits of leisure that will last them for the rest of their lives. And I want books to be at least on the top five list of something that our, my kids are going to as adults during their leisure time. And so, so it isn't so enough to go, simply read during school. They need to be reading on their own. So as soon as they could read on their own, they would have five minutes, like read an, read one picture book on your own, right? And then that got longer and longer as they've grown up and now they're 10 and 13. And so mm-hmm. before they... you know before they're ever allowed, say, to be on a screen in our home, they have to have at least at least 30 minutes of reading on their own under, under their belt. Um, but I'm still reading to them out loud. And I think we parents need to be doing that all the way until even way, yeah. all the way till kids move out yes. and maybe oh. even beyond. Okay. So, so you interact with the literature through read aloud, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned you assign their leisure reading. Yes. And I, we do have books that the kids are, I'm going to hand this over to Emily in a minute, but we do have books that the kids are, they must read or that I will. So for example, there's three series in our home that my kids are required to read by the time they get out of our home at least once. And they've, they've read them by now. So the first one is the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm -hmm. Um, and I want that to be read and reread. Mm -hmm. Um, and the second one is the Harry Potter series, which I know can be controversial amongst Christians, but in our home, it's necessary. I love that story. I think it's very redemptive and imaginative, has friendship, lot, lots of different things. Yeah. And then the last one is the Anne of Green Gables series. And as most of you know, I have a boy. And so he has to read the first one um, for sure, because I want, along with the magic and the fantasy and the allegory mm-hmm. of those other two, I want some kind of series that's just grounded in the beauty of ordinary life and celebrates nature. And that could be lots of little things. Right now we're listening through, uh, Little Britches, the mm-hmm. whole series, um, which is kind of more of a boy book, right? That's more right. a boy series, but Lucy's just listening to it and she's the one who loves it. Uh, or she does love it. So anyway, um, and of course, those aren't our only realized, but they're 
in our home, there are certain books I want to be formational. So yeah, we do have ones that they have to read, but for the most part on their, for their leisure reading at this point in their this stage of development, within reason, they can choose their, their own as long as it's, you know, been approved by, mm-hmm. you know, is morally acceptable. So. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Emily? Well, as we've talked about, and well, I think even in our first podcast together, mm-hmm. um, building the culture of a home, some of it is intentional and some of it just right. ha- happens because yeah. of who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the, the habits of reading in every family is going to look different for mm-hmm. each family. Um, I, I, I think I could be clinically diagnosed with an addiction to buying books. So that's, <laughs> I think that's a problem, but the benefit of that addiction is we have lots and lots of books in our house. Just, it's, it's actually a little bit insane how many books we have. So, I saw them. I know. I don't even have bookshelves. <laughs> they just like are all over the place. It's, it's a mess actually. But for us, part of creating a culture is the actual realness of have, just having books in my home. Um, this is, I mean, it's part of our decor. Um, mm-hmm. But along with Heidi, there are books that are, I mean, we just have book lists. I come up with a book list every summer. My kids have a book list um, apart from, you know, like whatever their history and literature assignments for different classes and stuff are in the summer and through the school year, they have book lists. And that's where um, the requirement of, you know, certain series, certain classics. Uh, yes, before you leave the house, you should have definitely read these books. That's very important for us. Um, that's funny. I just, that Heidi would say that because I just put Anna Green Gables on my oldest, uh, he's 14 boy, just put that on his book list this summer. And he kind of looked at me askance and I was like, yeah, for real. Um, <laughs> Because we don't limit... There's not like boy books and girl books. And I mean, we don't limit girl literature. I mean, uh, good literature to a gender. Um, And another quote I love by Lewis that says, if you don't read good books, you will read bad ones. Mm -hmm. And and that's a constant conversation in our home. And I'd love to hear, you know, from you guys about this. uh, You know, you go to the library and your kids pick up all these books and you're like, this is trashy. Um, and a lot of them are, there's a lot of books out there that aren't great books, but we, I mean, I just have, I have a bunch of readers. They love to read. Um, and so I've, I have had to be careful of not saying, no, no, no. These are the only approved books. These are the only books that you can read. In some ways, I, I'm not sure I would have kids who loved reading as much if I said, you can only read books that I think are worthy. Um, of your reading. So whether it's like one of the, my kids love the Fable Haven series mm-hmm. and it's like, they're not, they're, they're not good books. I mean, they're not, I mean, there's good versus evil. Sure. There's imagination, there's mythology in there. Yes. There's all of those things in there. But is that on some book list I have of books I want my kids to read before they leave home? No, but I, I still see the formation of the the reading of stories happening within them, even though it's not, you know, Dickens or the Iliad or the Odyssey or something like mm-hmm. that. So um, Heidi, what's been your experience with that and your kids reading books like that? Right. So, you know, Charlotte Mason talks a lot about twaddle and uh, there's lots of conversations between Charlotte Mason and classical educators about the issue of twaddle. And people land 
kind of on one side or the other on that particular issue. I do tend like you to be a little more in the middle uh, because I do, I, and I'm not talking about bad books. There are harmful books okay. and, and we need to be, we need to stay away from those. Uh, harmful books will do harm. Twaddle does harm in excess, right? You know, we're, uh, I like the classics. So Aristotle talks a lot about the the mean between two extremes, right? So if for my kids 30 minute reading time which is reading on their own, I will uh, they can read they can read what they want if it's been approved, even if it's twaddle. I'm not worried about that uh, because I am forming habits of reading, right? However, and this I think is important, there is a difference between uh the kinds of books that you, know, you can just pick up and read, and then literature, right? So, and a lot of literature in our home, I do not expect my kids to sit down and read Dickens or the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I know they're not going to pick that, and I'm and I I do pick it, but I'm forty, so these there's a difference there, right? Um, and there are some children who just naturally gravitate towards some of those harder books, and they like the challenge of that. I was one of those kids reading Jane Austen when I was twelve. That's fine, but we cannot expect our kids to necessarily pick that as a preference. That's that that's outstanding. That's extraordinary. Within the ordinary, it's I want my kids to get that, so I read it to them. So if I if there's books I that literary books that I want my kids to read, I will read it as a read aloud. Right. And and I think it's important to point out that there's the danger. Well, there's a, such a difference between twaddle and then the danger in the young adult section. Absolutely, at the library or the bookstore. And um, when I was teaching third grade, I would I you know I would see the kids come back from the library with Captain Underpants or something like that. And I, and, you know, I think, why do we have this in the library? Um, and sometimes a parent would say, well, at least my child's reading, which, you know, that's debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you have Captain Underpants, which is a silly book compared to some of the terrible young adult fiction that's out there. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, it, it's shocking if you, if you go there, it's so dark and evil and there's all kinds of issues being raised in right. those books that are written for, you know, 12 to 16 year olds. And so that's a different issue than twaddle. And Absolutely. having the right. yeah. and, and I see this is where the relationship with your child comes in that you know we've been fostering for however many years, a decade or so with older mm-hmm. kids and um and in that with the younger kids of uh, you know, having a series of questions of, tell me about that book. Um, mm. And I think, yes, there is a category of literature that perhaps doesn't require that same um, that same level of, hey, tell me what you're reading, what's going on. Um, but uh, at least in our own home, when there is there is space for reading some of those books that might be considered twaddle, something like that. Um, I have found a lot of opportunity. In fact, this just happened this week. Um, my daughter, Miette, who's 12, was reading a library book. And I said, hey, tell me about that library book. What was, you know, it's actually a great time for them to give you a little narration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, tell me the plot. Like, what was it about? What was the character like? And um, and it turned into this great conversation. And she's like, you know, it really wasn't that great of a book. 
Um, she's like, the story didn't really go anywhere. The, you know, the, the girl who was the main character, she, um, she didn't make very good choices. And I don't know, it kind of got me thinking a little bit that she, in a simple way, had to use discernment in that. And I'm not saying just like, you know, throw your kids to the wolves and expect them to just be wise in that. Um, but when we talk about creating a culture of literature and learning from a very young age, when you are nourishing them with great books and great texts, they actually know. They know what is a good book and they know what is a bad book. And it's not because we've lectured them to say, hey, if you, if there's any bad words in it, you know, it's a bad <laughs> book. If there's whatever, you know, mm. um, if there's romance, you need to make sure you tell me about it. That is actually part of the power of good literature, that it is forming their hearts and minds to know what good literature is even. Um, and just the whole idea of, it's just like our mantra, read and discuss, read and discuss, read and discuss. Like just, you read books and you talk about books. You read books and you talk about books. Um, so whether it's the literature, the high quality literature book that is truly bringing up those questions of what does it mean to be human? Who am I? Um, or there are also opportunities in these books that maybe aren't so great um, to have some of their those conversations. But, and Heidi would agree with this, if I had to choose between one or the other, obviously the choice is clear in that. Right. So, so you talked about reading aloud and um, assigned leisurely reading. Um, we briefly mentioned narration. Um, I'm interested in how you require kids to do a narration. Do they do written narrations? Is it all discussion? Do you just, is it short? Um, and I know that depending on the age of a child and, and what they're reading, the narration is going to look different. But, but generally, how, how did you both use narration as a tool? Right. That's a really good question. And I, if we're talking about homeschooling kind of reading, I will sometimes ask for a written narration mm -hmm. about a story, especially if we're reading a classic, if we're reading something like a, the, the Iliad or the Odyssey or a Shakespeare play, something like that. I will often ask for a written narration with those. However, if it's a book, a leisurely book, here's what I don't want. Every single time my child reads a book, I want them to sit down and get their commonplace book and write out a written narration chapter by chapter of this book. That's a good way to get your kids to hate reading to for hate all it. of their yeah. days, yes. right? Yeah. So mostly in that case, I do want them still to narrate, but I will do it within the context of a conversation. Mm -hmm. Hey, tell me about that book you're reading. I picked it up. I've never... And I do a lot of this. I've never read that before, right? Because then my child has done something I have not right? And then they have an opportunity to tell me about that. So, okay. So tell me about that book, just like Emily described uh, with the library book. Um, and, or if I have read it, I'll say, oh man, I can't really remember that. Will you, re will you remind me what's, what went on in that book? And then, then they're narrating and we're talking about it. And then if we come up again to an issue in which I want to take it kind of in a Socratic mm -hmm. way or, or there's an issue there that I have of concern or I think is a teachable moment, then I will branch it off from there. there and there really is no better way to, to determine comprehension. Right. Well, so. and I do not say, very, very rarely will I say, give me a narration of the book you're reading. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because that. I mean, why would they want to give me a narrative? Like that's homework, right? right. So they, they're reading that book for fun. So in some ways I have to lead them into it within the context of my relationship with my child. Mm-hmm. Well, and for a lot of these kids who were, who, who have been raised in the, and educated in the Charlotte Mason method, they have probably heard those words, give me a narration very strictly in a, like a school setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it often is, it's, it's a lot of work. Narrations are hard. Um, especially in that school setting, when you're looking for a, I want a written narration. I want a nor- an oral narration. This is something that we're progressing in and we're really working on. So I'm with Heidi. I would eh, probably never say, Hey, give me a narration on, you know, the Lion, the witch in the wardrobe, but it is fun to talk about books. Mm-hmm. And kids think it's fun to talk about right. books. And I love what Heidi says, because this is true for us as well. If they, they read a lot of things that I haven't read. Um, and they actually love that. They love that they know a story that I don't. And so then they're actually excited to tell me. I mean, sometimes I'm like, okay, well, I mean, we have other things to do in life and you're still going on that story. <laughs> um, like they're excited to, to share that. They think yes. creating space for that. Um, is very important. And I mean, it's often like when we're driving down the road or around the dinner table, those are the two main ones for us. So when we're sitting around the table or driving, it's like the captive audience mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. But I do think that is different. Um, and Heidi can speak to this as uh, a formal literature teacher who has taught for years. Um, there is a place for a formal understanding of literature. So my kids are in literature classes. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether that's, you know, a, a humanities class, so it's tied to history and poetry. And so it's, um, all tied together there. There are still formal elements that, that are important and that create a toolbox for your kids to understand their own reading. And I, I actually have seen, in fact, my kids have been in, um, several of Heidi's classes. I have seen them grow in their own understanding of their free reading by having an opportunity to understand literature a little bit more formally, whether it is learning what questions to ask, or maybe it's understanding figures of speech. Um, That's actually a really huge one. And obviously as kids get older, there's a greater understanding of that, but they actually get really excited about whether it's metaphor or a simile or alliteration um, or symbolism when they start noticing that themselves. And I don't know if you're for both of you, if your kids did this, um, you're all sitting around and they're reading a book and someone's like, oh, let me read this part to you. Oh, mm-hmm. let me read this part to you. And yeah. I love that. I love that they want to share something they think is funny or creative. or And I think that's the culture of literature we're talking about, that some of it is organic, um, but a lot of it is intentional. We're doing this on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it... it- it, that love of it stems from the affections and the order of the affections. So they're loving right. it. And then as they learn more about it, they love it even more. And they grow in the confidence, uh, you know, of experiencing it and talking about it. And they think, I, I can, this book's, book's hard, but I, I can go, I can get through it and we right. can enjoy it. And that that's really important. Well, um, and because literature is such a culture uh, in our home, I know this is true for both of you in your in your homes too. I do not feel the pressure to make every book some kind of lesson plan 
right? Just yeah. to educate towards delight is worthy. So it yes. doesn't have to be, oh, I have to make sure I get to narrations with this one. Or I have to make sure that, you know, the kids, I, I know that they really understood it or fin- even finished it. It's perfectly mm-hmm. fine. My daughter just gave up on a book a couple of weeks ago that she started and she was like, I liked it, but is it okay if I don't finish it? Of course, right? She's a yeah. reader. I'm, she, can, she has that discernment on her own. And then another thing I never, ever, ever do, ever, is... What did you learn from that book and what was the moral of the story? Oh, yeah. Right? That the whole point of this is that the form and the content of literature does that work without our help. We can relax on that. Right. There's nobody is going to read uh, say one much ado about nothing and not get that chastity is an important quality for a young woman. It's in the it's there. Right. So we don't need to say, don't you want to be just like hero? Right. (laughs) What did you learn from this about the value of chastity? Right. Because that teaches a child that literature can be reduced to a moral. And, and that now that I've got the moral, I cracked the code and that's all I needed from this story. So, and and it needs to settle in their soul. And it's almost knocks it out when, when we do that. And um, exactly. I, I remember one time I was reading um, the children's Bible storybook to my third graders, and we got to the story about Elisha and these two boys, so two, or some boys, maybe it doesn't say how many boys. Anyways, boys were, t- were calling him baldhead, and mm. um, <laughs> they were being very disrespectful, and uh, some bears came and ate up those boys. Yep, and when we got Bible. to the... <laughs> I know when we got to the end of the story, like they were silent, like there were some gasps, you know, where it ends with, and the bears ate up the bad boys. And in that moment, I could have said, now, what did we learn about about how we treat our elders? You know, but it was like, oh, well, that was the end of the story. Now, you know, that's all. The silence was golden. I didn't need to say anything. But that's also what, that's why it matters. That's why, like I said, if you don't read good books, you'll read bad ones. Good literature speaks for itself. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, bad books are formational to a child, just not in the way that we want them to be formed. So if we're not going to give a moral or a lesson or explain it away, and we want it to speak for itself, then it has to be a book that can speak for itself, Um, which is why we do choose good literature for our kids to allow it to speak for itself in that way. Uh, so if we want to talk about choosing good literature, that is a topic uh, in and of itself. Absolutely. Um, and we've talked around that, but if there are a couple of uh, standards by which you choose, what would they, what are they? So I will say I'm not a, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do this, but I am, I am not a take my kids to the library to pick out books kind of mom. I am a, Mm -hmm. I check book lists that I trust. Sarah McKenzie, I really love her book lists. Like there's many, many high quality Charlotte Ambleside, right? Mm -hmm. We use those for leisure books as well as school books. Um, So I will go hunt down book lists and then purchase them cheaply, usually online. Mm -hmm. And or with coupons or 
you know, scour thrift thrift stores or whatever, then those tend to be the books that my kids read. Like we will every once in a while go to the library, but I'm not a go and pick one out kind of mom. I'm like, these are the books that you can read. We have thousands of them. Yeah. Literally, we have thousands of them. You are going to be fine. <laughs> so that yeah. is, that's kind of my go-to. And what they can choose whatever they want. Uh, I have one rereader, like very mm-hmm. deep rereader. I just have my two kids. I've got one rereader and then I have one wide reader, broad mm-hmm. reader. And so, um, and I am all for rereading. I think that yeah. that is just as formational as being widely read. Uh, and so I, that doesn't bother me. Um, so those, that's kind of how I do. I would say find some really good book lists, mm-hmm. fill your home with those, work your way through those, uh, and um, and then kind of go on from there. And as I know Emily's kids are older and she did this exact same thing. So when she's talking about going to the library, uh, she has kids who are very formed already. So Yes, and they're going to choose at that yeah, stage. Pretty wise. Yeah. They're going to choose the good things, the life-giving books. Well, uh-huh. and it's, I would say trust, trust wise people. Um, and I know there's, um, you know, a couple camps as far as pre-reading books, do you pre-read your kids' books? Um, I'm sure other people can relate to this. Like I actually do, I absolutely could not pre-read all of the books that my children read. I just have like really voracious readers. Um, but, and that's where trusting wise people comes in. So whether it's, yeah, Reader Aloud Revival or Ambleside, or there's actually so, so, so many um, book lists out there. And not only like, these are classic literature book lists. Um, and as far as using the library, uh, we actually don't often, maybe a couple of times in the summer, uh, we'll go and my kids can just pick out books. But we utilize the library of just like, I just, I'll just, I literally will put 80 books on hold. Um, and mm-hmm. then I can go ahead and, you know, maybe I've read reviews or someone recommended it, or it's a new series that someone said, Hey, you should check this out. Um, so I do utilize the library in that way, but yes, trusting wise people. And then for yourself, I mean, most of us are readers. So is it, I mean, you can pick up a book and within re- reading three pages, see whether it's well-written or not. Right. So that, that actually as a composition teacher, that matters to me that the books that my children are reading are well-written because I know that the things that they read will form how they write as well and how they communicate. So if they're reading well-written books, that will overflow into the way they speak, into the way that they write. Um, And so not only how well it is written, but also what does it tell me about myself? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about the world? Um, so that's kind of like the, just the questions in the back of my head. Um, if it absolutely doesn't, if it's not well-written, um, if it does not pose any existential questions at all, it's probably it a no. It's yeah. probably a no. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. How about, let, let's move on to drama for a minute. Um, I, cause I know that you both have your kids doing Shakespeare things, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. poem, uh, plays and you're, you, some, I think Heidi, your kids were just in a play. Uh, well, last year they did a two week Shakespeare okay. camp over the okay, summer. They didn't do the same one this year, okay. unfortunately, and, but yeah. Emily, your, your kids have done Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. Also. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We do Shakespeare yeah. in school and yeah, we did Shakespeare yeah. with Heidi's kids last year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how, how is, 
what's that like? Like when you do, when you're putting, doing Shakespeare play with kids who are, you know, young, younger than say 14. Um, mm. Tell me about that. I am not at all worried about whether my kids understand every word of Shakespeare. Mm. I read children's version. I'm a huge believer in, I'm, I'm taking a stand on this one. I know this can be controversial in homeschooling circles. I am a huge believer in, in high quality illustrated children's versions mm-hmm. of the classics mm-hmm. from the very earliest days of their lives. I think they should know the stories before they read the plays. Um, so I will read them the story. Emily mm-hmm. does the same thing I know. And then we just sit and do like a reader's theater. And then they can act out the plays. They, they can just have fun with it. Um, and I'm, I'm not... The only way to understand Shakespeare's English is for a child and, and even for an adult is just to do it. There's no shortcut, right? It isn't... Um, you just have to read it and read it aloud and hear it read aloud. We watch a lot of film versions. We go to a lot of Shakespeare plays uh, to see performances. Um, and so... We just read it out loud. I'm less concerned with whether they understand every single word than I am that they get the whole overall play and that they have fun with the language. That's Shakespeare is playing with English. And so uh, I want my kids to do the same thing. I want them to say, I have no idea what a bodric is, but this sounds fun, right? And then just act out the play. Yeah. yeah. We we did that with our kids. They, they watched Henry V. They went did some Shakespeare on the green. They loved uh, Much Do About Nothing. And mm-hmm. I remember one time, uh, David must have been seven. So Katie was probably four. And they were in the backyard and we had a swing and we had a little swing waiting pool and Katie was swinging on the swing and David was splashing in the pool and they were acting out that scene. Oh, the scene from Much Ado. Nothing. And, you know, or they would pretend to be Henry V or what, you know, and, and even, um, Last night at dinner, we everybody was over and they were noticing that Andrew just got a whole set like you have, Emily, of all the the blue, you know, the, the little Yale Shakespeare. Yes, and we he just ordered that from somewhere and we got in. So Coulter was looking at it and Coulter said something like, "My favorite play is The Tempest," you know, and they were talking about it. And then he he pulled out Henry or Hamlet, actually, I think he pulled out and he said, "Can we read this?" And uh, you know, I'm thinking he's seven. And because his taste is being formed, That's right. it looks like fun to him. And he's, you know, he's, we're not, they're not waiting till he's 13 and then handing him Shakespeare and expecting him to love it. Right. And sit in an armchair and love. read it. Yeah. Like that, you know? they, nobody should yeah. sit in an armchair and read Shakespeare. It's meant to be performed. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's I, where I would agree with Heidi initially in reading children's versions, because that is what captured the story itself captured my kids' imaginations. Right. And they actually are really fun stories and they're quirky and they're funny or they're sad and the tragedies they're just like horrified at, which is they love. So it's right, like right. they like being horrified at it. Um and and we have done uh, our process is we'll read a children's version of it. Um, so read and discuss, right? We'll read a children's version of it and like, you know, what are they doing and why are they doing it? And before we introduce the, you know, Shakespearean language, which is actually hard, it's hard for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what they're talking about either, but I had so much fun even this past year. I just picked a couple of Shakespeare fl- plays. We had, um, in fact, uh, Heidi's girl, Lucy was one of them. We had a couple friends over and we read the kids version. And then, I mean, let's see the, 
oldest would be Caden and he was 14, but most of the kids were anywhere from like eight to 10 ish. Um, and everybody had a book and we would, with each act and scene, we would just assign like, you be Romeo, you be Juliet. It was incredible to me that they just, um, for the most part, they really got what was going on. Um, was there some stumbling over the words? Sure. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It was our rule that no kid could correct another kid in their reading. <laughs> Just let him do it. Yeah. Um, and to watch them really engage in it and say, you know, let's read the next scene. Let's not stop here. And then when we finished the whole thing, we did like a reader's theater that I had found. And so then we acted it out and it was, it was mostly hilarious. It was Romeo and Juliet and which is not supposed to be funny, but they're dying laughing at their own acting. Um, <laughs> but yeah. What was offered them was, I love Shakespeare. Shakespeare's entertaining and it's exciting, um, which is, as we're, you know, just have been talking about this entire time, not that we're looking just to entertain our children, but we are looking to capture their affection. Um, right. And I think using the tools, even in Shakespeare, which is hard, and I, I've only come to love Shakespeare let's be honest, in probably the past five years or so. Um, but it's because my affection has been captured as well. Right. Well, and the, the engaging of que- questions in Shakespeare is relatively easy with younger kids. Uh, we talk a lot um, at the Circe Institute about the should question, mm-hmm. which is perfect, perfect for Shakespeare. And you can start that very young. Uh, they can read a scene and then ask that, you know, should... Romeo, go to the party at the Capulets, right? So that's a great question that opens up. And when they, an- when they ans- answer that question on their own, right, then they're taking a stand on a literary issue without knowing they are. They're, they think they're just being asked an opinion by an adult, which kids love to get. When mm-hmm. are kids ever asked their opinion by adults, right? We just impose yeah. things on them. Yeah. So literature is a wonderful opportunity to engage uh, children in conversation with things like that. Should, should Romeo have, uh, you know, killed himself at the end? Mm. That's a pretty big question of the play. (laughs) Should they have gotten married? Should they have fallen in love? Shakespeare delights in these, uh, these moral ambiguities throughout the play. And so what uh, any of his plays, so let's ask them. And then that play becomes theirs. Right now, Romeo and Juliet belongs to my daughter, Lucy. It belongs to Emily's daughter, Ellis. It belongs to me. It belongs to Caden, right? And it, it's, it's theirs. They own it. They have a stake in how it turns out because they've acted in it and they have expressed an opinion to an adult about it. Yeah. Well, and I'll throw, I'll throw this out there from my own experience. And I was just actually last, a couple weekends ago, I was talking to Heidi about this. If you... If you are a teacher like me, and maybe it intuitively doesn't come to you to know, well, what questions to ask? Um, it actually does intuitively come to Heidi. Like she just thinks she has like a very literary mind. And so well, it's she's like, also a counselor by training. So you, you understand the psyche. So. It, that is true. So it, it, it naturally comes to her yeah. to, these are the questions to ask about Shakespeare or, you know, whatever the classic text is it doesn't come to me quite as intuitively. Does that mean you cannot, should you just scrap the whole thing and give up and let somebody who's more, you know, an expert Mm. teach your kids? 
obviously we don't think that. Um, so I have found it to be very helpful to be to prepare myself, to study up, to think through it in that, well, what questions am I going to ask? Um, whether it's the should question or whatever. I mean, the, so now those questions are just, it's, it, that's part of my toolbox as a teacher. Um, and I think a couple years ago when I put it in my mind, I am a professional teacher. Like as a homeschool mom, I'm a professional teacher. This is what my career is. This is my job. So as such, I should prepare to teach literature to my children. Um, and, and there's so many resources out there on whatever, like teaching Shakespeare or teaching mythology or teaching fairy tales. You know, if you're, if you're asking yourself, well, what questions should I ask and how should I teach this? Um, and I know actually this is a question I think you get often, isn't it, Heidi? Like, how do I teach these things? What do I yes, say? all the time. There are, mm-hmm. there are actually a lot of resources out there of here's questions to ask and not just like spoon feeding it to you to feed to your children, but that actually is a part of professional development. So do you, and, have, do you have any recommendations for those resources off the top of your head or do you want to put them up on the on the Facebook wall later sometime. Um, you probably I could probably speak to Shakespeare more. You probably have some good ones on that. Cause I know you recommended some things to me. Um, there's a couple others specifically on mythology that I've enjoyed, or what's the one on fairy tales that both you and I read, Heidi? Um, the uses of enchantment. Uses of enchantment. Mm. Um, Fabulous. So, uh, yeah, really helpful. And, and I think when you begin to consider yourself a real teacher of your children. Yes. yes. Yeah. Like this is your vocation. You have been called to this. Um, be willing to put some effort into it to say, well, I actually don't know what the Aeneid is talking about, but <laughs> I could, maybe I could think about it a little bit. Maybe I could read what some other people have said. Like there is, that's actually important as you're discussing literature with your children. That, right. And off the top of my head, I, Almost all of the great courses on Audible that I have listened to on literature and great books have been oh, excellent. Oh, good. So helpful. Yeah, okay. And those are things you can read in the car. They doesn't have to be a school. I'm sorry. Well, you don't read in them the in the car. You don't but, read them. Don't know. do that. No. Yep. So I do that are the difference between listening and reading. Um, <laughs> you can listen to them in the car. Don't read anything in the car if you are driving a car. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words. Really noted. I second that. Like the great courses. Like I, I mean... We, I don't know how many have we listened to, just probably a dozen or more. Um, and it's really broadened my understanding of literature. So if you're a person like me that literature doesn't always come naturally to, it has really opened my the way I view literature. And you actually, just like our kids are, you grow in your understanding of it. And then 5, 10, right. 15 years later, you're like, yeah. oh, I actually... I actually kind of know what's going on. And honestly, that happened a little bit this year with Shakespeare as I'm just sitting down and reading Shakespeare for fun. I'm like, oh, I know what they're talking about. Like, this is, this is like a miracle. You know, <laughs> a year ago, I would have read Shakespeare and been like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Um, and so, as, so, that, and so we're, we're growing alongside with our kids. That kind of um, speaks to the idea that uh, these things create culture in the home because it's not just something that the children are experiencing, but, but you're experiencing it too. Right. And, and that, you know, yeah, and from an yeah. attitude of, I'm learning alongside you. Um, 
And I was thinking about in preparing for a class on medieval literature that I'm teaching this year and a couple of the books that I'm teaching, I've actually never read. Um, I was like, that's all right. I'm going to read them alongside with the kids and we will read them and we will talk about them and we'll see what they're about and we'll see and, and, you know, how they affect us. And that's how literature creates community, which is really right. what we're talking about. That's right. It's, and habits. One thing I love about Charlotte Mason is that there she's encourages these habits of the mind, these habits of the heart and habits of the home that are not about covering material or getting through books, but they're they're about forming the way that we love, the way that we think, the way that we engage with reality and ideas in the world. And that's going to carry our kids. We do not have to cover a certain amount of books uh, or even certain books by the time that our kids move out or are done with their education. This is about the formation of habits, which means contemplation and leisure and laughter uh, and all the things that build relationship and form connections for our souls. That's the thing that matters in reading literature. And and I think just to broaden that, that's the thing that matters with all these topics that I've been talking about, whether, right. whether it's faith or serving yes. together or being outside in nature or experiencing art together or music together. It's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's, it's such a big topic and it includes all of what we've been talking about. Yeah. yeah. So it has been nearly an hour. And um, I'm wondering if you have any, any, as David would say, closing thoughts. Oh, the final <laughs> the thoughts pressure, question. The pressure, the pressure's yes. on. <laughs> I, I have no final thought, no original final thoughts. Well, Just read, that, read for your yeah. own love and read to your kids. Well, I, I think it's always good to end with somebody else's thoughts versus your own. Oh, so I'll just, yeah. I'll just throw out you. I yeah. know. I'll throw out another C.S. Lewis quote. Okay. Um, he says, one of the minor rewards of conversion, Christian conversion, he writes this in a letter to a friend, is to be able to see at last the real point of all the old literature, which we were brought up to read with the point left out. Hmm. And thinking of the beauty of raising these children that God has gifted us with in a home that knows the real point of literature. Hmm. And I just have been contemplating that, just like the glory of that. And when we're talking about building a culture, the culture of our home, as you said, whether it's nature or um, having fun together, as you and Elsie talked about, or literature or whatever the subject is or whatever, just the, the embodiment of the idea of we, we know what the real point is. And the real point of these books that we read is to know our maker and know who we are. Um, and just allowing that to settle in. And as Heidi said, we don't have to like cover these huge book lists or make sure we get through all of these texts we do have to remember what the real point is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and that carries us through the harder yeah. days, the the you know, through everything. So yeah. So thank you to both of you. 
Oh, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Karen. It's Um, always a delight to talk to you about anything uh, ever. To talk to you guys. And uh, this concludes, actually, these eight episodes that that I've been doing with with both of you and other guests on on the culture in our home. And so I want to thank both of you and our listeners for being with us. Thank you. 